Well, when it's all said and done and we look back on the lives of people who've already finished their course on this side of eternity, we remember them not for all the little moments that they lived for however long they were on earth, but we remember them largely for simple to say, but big and meaning descriptions. We remember them for their character. We remember them for their contributions. As time goes by, we might remember moments and experiences, certainly of our loved ones and people that we knew personally, but for people that we didn't know personally. We just learned about them. We heard about them. We may have read about them in a history book. We don't recall all those little moments. We just remember qualities, categories. We may say this person was good, that person was bad. This lady was a people helper. That guy was a people hurter, harmer. Saying one name from history can just bring a summary of their entire life quickly. I could say Mozart, Michelangelo. I could compile a list of names that I suppose would bring to your mind generally negative one-word summaries. Pharaoh, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Judas, Caesar, Hitler. On the other hand, I could give a list of names and very quickly, I suppose most of you would think largely positively of these people. Old Testament lady Esther, New Testament convert Mary Magdalene, church father Augustine, Amy Carmichael, Irma Bobo, Carol Couples. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Or better yet, what will you be remembered for? I completely commend the 18th century Moravian missionary's life goal. Nicholas von Zinzendorf, you may have heard his slogan, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's a very good goal. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I hope that you'll embrace that. I'd love to embrace that more in my own self. But you're going to be remembered by somebody, at least for a little while. But I don't want us to kid ourselves thinking that we're going to be remembered by everybody for a long while. One of my dear friends I've told our church before, his name is Lance Parrott. He's a pastor in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in our sister family of churches called Treasuring Christ Together, TCT. Lance pastors Christ Fellowship Church, a sister TCT church in Bowling Green. And for the last year and a half or so, he's been doing something that a lot of people think is really weird. He's been walking around cemeteries. That's where he goes on a lot of prayer walks. He's walked, I think, every cemetery in his city. And he looks around at the gravestones and thinks about the people's life and the little dash between the beginning and the ending date and wonders what may have happened with them. And he's done that to help him get in touch with his own mortality. And and he told me that his main takeaway of about a year and a half's worth of cemetery walking has been that his grandchildren's grandchildren probably won't know his first name. Think about that. Your grandkids' grandkids probably won't know your first name. That'll help us not take ourselves too seriously. Today's passage, Paul is writing 
what proved to be his final words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. He may have written more words. These are the last words that he wrote, that God wrote through him. After today's passage, we have nothing else written in Scripture by the Apostle Paul. Of course, we remember him. We're literally talking about him today, over 2,000 years later. We remember his contribution to the defense, that's the preservation, and to the advance, that's the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of other people mentioned in this passage that we don't often recall, and you may not have ever heard of any of them. Trophimus, Pudens, Eubulus, Linus, Claudia, all the brethren. These verses are not only Paul's final words that were included in the Bible, they're also a very good summary of what his whole life was all about after he met Jesus. What was his whole life all about after he met Jesus? What was Sister Claudia's life or Sister Prisca, Priscilla's life all about after those ladies met Jesus? What was Linus and, Claude and uh, Putin and Eubulus's life all about? What was Trophimus and Timothy's life literally all about after they all met the same Jesus? Answer, their life was all about Jesus and loving and serving the people of Jesus, which was the evidence that their life was actually all about Jesus. Is your life all about Jesus? Or you could ask the other longer question, is your life all about loving and serving the people of Jesus? If so, you may not be remembered on earth by hardly anybody, but I assure you, you will not be forgotten in heaven. Paul's final words were, very personal, and they show us that he was deeply bound to the people of Jesus. The passage is the last few verses of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 19 to 22. I'll give you a moment to find that place, and I want you to follow along carefully as I serve as our reader, 2 Timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 19, this surprising paragraph came from the heart of the God of the universe. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Let me give you just a moment to ask God to bless you right now. You do that silently. Oh, Father, for the glory of your name and for the honor of your son, would you anoint our engagement with today's passage, causing our life to be all about your son, evidenced by our life being all about loving the people who belong to your son. And we pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So I'm going to deal with this passage in two parts, verse 19 to 22, part number one, verse 19 to 21, part number two, verse 22. In verses 19 to 21, the love and lifestyle of Christians. Not some Christians, all Christians. This is just the Christian life. It's the love that's in your heart and the lifestyle that's through your life of Christians. And second, verse 22, the blessings upon blessings upon blessings, I could keep going, that are ours in Christ. First, the love and lifestyle of Christians. We're just going to take these names and people one at a time. First, we meet again this sweet couple, Prisca and Aquila. Do you see them in verse 19? Paul commands Timothy, greet Prisca and Aquila. That's the lady first and the man second. From the little information we have about these two people in verse 19 alone, we can discern at least a few things about them. Number one, they're still married. Number two, they're still serving Jesus. And number three, they're with Timothy. Greet them, Timothy. They must be in Ephesus, faithful members of Jesus' church in Ephesus. So Paul says, greet them, that is a command. We learn so much about these individuals and their marriage, their walk with Jesus, their service to Christ and his people. You could quite literally say, just like Paul, Prisca's life, Aquila's life, and the marriage of Priscilla and Aquila was all about Jesus and all about loving and serving the people of Jesus. Again, I ask you, is that what your life is like? In Romans 16, Paul called this couple, quote, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, just like Paul, who we often appreciate and talk about. He served the Lord. We all, as Christians, would agree with that if we know anything about the Bible. Paul said, just like I do that, this lay couple, they're not pastors, they're just church members, just people for whom Jesus died. Just like I serve Jesus, they also serve Jesus. We just have a little different expression of that because of God's calling on our life. In 1 Corinthians 16, we find out that Aquila and Priscilla lovingly, it says literally, heartily in the Lord sent blessings to people along with, quote, the church that is in their house. They hosted a congregation just like this in their house. Now, sometimes we just think house church means informal and no structure or plan. Just go read the books of the Bible like Corinthians that talk about the church, and you'll find out they did what literally we're doing right now. But they just did it in their house and not in a cafetorium. Think for just a moment with me about this couple from other places in the Bible. We know from Scripture a pretty good sketch of this beautiful married couple. I'm leaning on several commentaries, just put this sketch together. I'm not going to cite who I got it from and where I got it, but I'm just pulling it all together. And I want to tell you, I think, nine things that we know about them. Number one, Paul met them in the city of Corinth. Prisca and Aquila were not from Corinth. Aquila's from modern-day Turkey. After he met and married his wife, they lived in Rome, but they got forced out of Rome, and Paul met them in Corinth. They relocated to Corinth due to some very difficult circumstances. 
They did not stop loving Jesus because life got hard. Life got really hard for this young married couple in Rome because they loved Jesus. And they got forced out of Rome, and Paul met them in Corinth. We know from Acts 18.2, Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, that's Rome, with his wife Priscilla. Why did they leave Rome? Quote, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. They got kicked out for loving Jesus, and when they went to a new place, guess what they did? Loved Jesus. That's where Paul met them in Corinth. Number two, in God's providence, they got connected with Paul, not because of the church, but because of work. They were both tent makers. Acts 18.3, Paul came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Oh, you make tents too? Cool, so do we. Oh, you're a Christian? Come live with us. Don't underestimate what God can do for the spread of the gospel through your work relationships. Young people, what's your job? Who owns the company? Who do you talk to most at work? Fellas, Randy, who works in accounting, might prove to be one of the guys who hears about your nephew's college mission trip and supports that endeavor because God intends to save Muhammad in the Middle East when he goes there. Randy in accounting is part of God's plan for the spread of the gospel if Randy's a Christian and you work with Randy. Number three, Priscilla and Aquila hosted Paul in their home and enjoyed a very special friendship with him. Acts 18.3, I've already mentioned, Paul stayed with them. That's a quote from God, Paul stayed with them. That's where Paul lived when Paul went to Corinth. Is your home open for the advance of the gospel? Number four, Priscilla and Aquila not only hosted Paul in their home, as I mentioned, they hosted a church in their home. 1 Corinthians 16.19 the church that is in their house. That verse is very significant, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Not, because it on, not only because it mentions the church in their house, but it's actually the only verse where this married couple is mentioned and the man's name comes first, Aquila and Priscilla and the church in their house. All the other times, it's Priscilla and Aquila, lady first. Maybe Paul accents her first most of the time because of her very generous, Jesus-saturated hospitality to him. But when Paul talks about the church, I don't think it's insignificant that Paul mentions him first. I think this is a subtle reference to Paul's ecclesiology, God honoring, God honoring gender roles in the life of the Lord's church. Number five, the Lord gave Priscilla and Aquila to go wherever Jesus wanted them to go, whenever Jesus wanted them to go. Is your heart like that? We know that wherever they went, they served the Lord together. Oh, that's what makes for a happy marriage. Happy wife, happy life. You want a happy marriage? Stop being the center of it. Christ in the middle, Christ at the center. That's the only ingredient that is absolutely necessary for a happy marriage. They went from Corinth to Ephesus. They didn't stay in Corinth. Why did they go? Acts 18, 18, Paul told them that it would be a good place for them to go and serve with him. 
Number six, we know they were not a fanboy of the Apostle Paul. Oh, we'll just go wherever he goes because Paul's like the all-star of the kingdom and we want to be associated with Paul. They were not fanboys. They didn't love Paul because he was their celebrity pastor. They actually stayed at Ephesus because Paul told them, just stay put and be a faithful church member here. And Paul left and went on his way. Number seven, while Priscilla and Aquila were living in Ephesus, they were absolutely instrumental in the propagation of the gospel to the known world by being a faithful church member in one place by discipling one of the most gifted preachers of the first century, Apollos. Acts 18, 24 to 26, I won't read it for you, but it concludes by saying, Prisca and Aquila, her first, took Apollos aside, a guy who was famous in the things of the gospel, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Brothers and sisters, do you want to make a gigantic impact for the name of Jesus in this generation? Embed your life in one gospel-preaching church and disciple young guys. And I'm talking to the ladies when I say that. Number eight, Priscilla and Aquila eventually moved back to Rome. We know that because Paul greeted them in his letter to the Roman church in Acts 16.3. What a way to be described. Fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Is that you? Number nine, last thing about Priscilla and Aquila. In our text, Paul wanted Timothy, verse 19, to greet them. He didn't spell it out, but you know what that means. Timothy's like busy making dinner. Oh man, I forgot Paul said, and he texts them. Paul said, hi, no. Paul had a very special love for this couple. Timothy knew it. He had seen it with his own eyes, this koinonia relationship of mutual edification in Jesus. Greet them, why? Timothy knew this verse. He was actually there when it happened. He knew exactly what it meant. Romans 16, 4, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own neck for me. I give them thanks. I can't wait to get to heaven for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to find Priscilla. And when I find her, I want to know, what does Romans 16, 4 mean? How did you and your husband almost die because you were serving the Apostle Paul? What's that about? So when Paul writes to Timothy, you tell them I said hello. Timothy knew what Paul was talking about. The second person that we want to draw some attention to, and all the others are far less biblical material, so I don't have nine things on all of them, is the household of Onesiphorus. Do you see that in verse 19b? Greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Oni. You guys remember him from when we were meeting on Sunday afternoons back at Redeemer? We were in chapter 1 of this book. In chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, that's the only other place in the whole Bible that this guy's mentioned, Onesiphorus. In those verses, we find out he's a faithful servant of the Lord. We read things like, he's not ashamed of the chains of Paul. Paul's in jail for being a Christian. Onesiphorus is not ashamed of that. He identifies himself with Paul. Hey, if they put me in jail too, I don't care. I love Paul. I love Jesus. 
I'll take whatever comes with loving Jesus. He eagerly searched for Paul and he found him. The New International Greek Testament commentary said, the, phrase, the phraseology of verse 19, greet the household of Onesiphorus. Not greet Onesiphorus. Tell his family, I said hello. Probably means, and I quote, he is dead. Holman New Testament commentary. There is reason to believe from Paul's wording that Onesiphorus died, probably in his service to Christ. Don't read that verse, feel that verse. Do not just hear it. Step into it. Paul is making sure that Timothy says hello to Onesiphorus' wife and kids because he might have, probably did, give his life serving Jesus. And Paul wanted them to remember, he's worth it. Tell him I said hello. Erastus, verse 20, the third of the character sets here, we're told only this, he remained at Corinth. Concerning those next two names, Erastus, verse 20, and Trophimus, we don't know a ton of information, but we know some good stuff in the little information we got. Paul held them in very high regard as people whose life was all about Jesus. I mean, would you like God to think that way about you? God thinks your life is all about Jesus. That's the way God told Paul to write about these people. Erastus, Trophimus. According to Acts 19.22, Erastus ministered alongside Paul in Corinth, faithful member of the church at Corinth. He was also associated with Timothy's ministry in Ephesus, so he served the Lord and the Lord's people in Corinth, and he served the Lord and the Lord's people in Ephesus. We also know from Romans 16, 23, he was, quote, the city treasurer of Corinth. He had a public service job, maybe voted into office. If so, if that's all the same Erastus, city treasurer in Corinth, faithful member of the church in Corinth, this is a prominent public servant. Everybody in the city would have known his name. And his primary job, as he saw it, was serving Jesus. Don't you ever think in this Western culture you live in, you don't even know you swim in this water because you swim in this water. You can understand my sentence because I'm speaking the language you grew up speaking. That's most of you. If you heard the prayer meeting, not all the people grew up speaking this mother tongue. But you're growing up in an aquarium and you don't even know you're in the water and it's called climb the ladder, get more. We Americans, we're really efficient people. Do it quicker, faster, cheaper. Make more money in the process. Do not ever think that your job and your advancement in it in any way diminishes your responsibility to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. If you get better at your job and worse at being faithful to Jesus, Quit your job or repent. 
Erastus shows us that whatever doors God opened for him in the marketplace, he fully intended to bring Jesus with him into those places. God put Erastus in politics in Corinth so he could serve Jesus there as a faithful member of the local church. He gave that dude more money so that that church could have their needs met. What's your strategy for investing in God's kingdom? That's Erastus. Trophimus in verse 20 is not with Timothy. He's not with Paul. And he's not in Corinth. Where is he? Miletus. We don't know of any New Testament church there. Paul did meet the Ephesian elders there because he was passing through. Last time he ever saw those brothers that he served with for three and a half years. But he left Trophimus there. Why did he leave him there? Verse 20, because he was sick. A few things we know about Trophimus. Number one, Timothy and Trophimus were two of the guys that went with Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem. They spent a lot of time together. It took months to travel that distance. And Trophimus was with Paul the whole way. I would have loved to have eavesdropped on those conversations. In Acts 20, verse 4, we know that Tychicus was also part of that journey who Paul mentions in verse 12. These were a band of brothers serving Jesus together. And Paul had to leave him sick at Miletus. We also know Trophimus was in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever read this passage or if you've read it, you can remember it. But Trophimus is the dude that the Jews wanted to kill Paul because of. You remember that story? They accused Paul of bringing Trophimus into the court of the temple, but he was a Greek, and it stirred up a mob, and they were literally trying to rip Paul limb from limb over this dude allegedly being in the temple, Acts 21. This man was somebody who spent lots of time with the Apostle Paul. He saw Paul suffer over false accusation on his behalf. And Paul only says, I left him sick at Miletus. Timothy, I just want you to know where our kindred brother's at. Pray for Trophimus, he's sick. You know what this verse does? You may say, man, why does God put sentences like that in the Bible? You know what this verse does? Probably a lot more than this, but not less than this. It destroys the nonsense of so-called faith healers who travel around hosting big healing crusades. I talked to some of these people in Kenya a few years ago who were about to hold a big tent meeting for their little healing crusade. And I said, cancel your trip. I need you to come home with me. I live one block from St. Jude. Can you please tear your tent down in Africa and walk the halls of St. Jude? Just heal all those kids. It's interesting how they never go there. Acts 14, 8. Did Paul ever heal anybody? Yes. He healed a lame man who was crippled since birth. Acts 19, 11, and 12. They literally took Paul's handkerchief out of his pocket, laid it on people, and they got healed. Acts 20, verses 9 through 12, Paul preached a sermon. You think my preaching is long and boring? Paul preached a sermon so long and to one dude so boring that he fell asleep at midnight and the dude fell out the window from the third floor. 
Eutychus. And Paul just walked down the stairs, went to Eutychus and said, don't worry, he's not dead, laid on top of him, and raised the dude from the dead or resuscitated him from near death. Acts 28, 8 and 9, the father of Pubulus was lying in, in bed afflicted with a recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after he prayed, Paul laid his hands on him and healed him. Did Paul ever heal people? Yes. Did he heal Trophimus? No. Was Trophimus useful to Paul in ministry? Yes. Did he do a bunch of good stuff, including encouraging Paul to keep going? Yes. Did Paul say, be healed, come with me, we got work to do for Jesus? No. At the very least, this shows us that it is not always God's will to heal you at least not physically. The healings in Scripture are, are always Old and New Testament, serving to substantiate the truth of the gospel and the reality that Jesus is the Savior. That's why the healings happened. And when that was not necessary, people didn't get healed. God didn't allow people to just do magic tricks in Jesus' name. That's what Simon the sorcerer wanted the power to do, and Peter told him, you and your money can go to hell. In our text, Paul does not heal this faithful Christian dear friend. He left him sick and pressed on in the work of Christ without him. That's some of the people, but then Paul turns the focus to Timothy. In verse 21, he tells him, Make every effort to come before winter. If you just skim up to verse 9, you can see that Paul already told him to come and to do it quickly. Make every effort to come to me soon. But here in verse 21, he clarifies. You know, when you tell your hey kids, when mom says clean your room, and you, said, you say, I will, that leaves negotiable, the window. How, when will you do it? As soon as possible. Okay. Paul said come soon, verse 9, and he clarifies in verse 21, before winter. As you may be able to suspect, travel in the first century was often difficult, particularly in the Mediterranean, especially in winter. The waters and the roadways would be very dangerous. Paul himself was shipwrecked in such a season and almost died. One commentary said travel was very difficult in those days, particularly in winter. Crossing the Adriatic Sea to Italy would prove impossible during stormy winter months. Paul didn't want Timothy to die on the way, and Paul actually needed Timothy to come soon for at least two reasons. Paul knew that the biting cold of winter was coming soon and he was almost, if not entirely, naked, chained to a wall in a dungeon for preaching Jesus. And he knew when winter comes, frostbite will take off my fingers and my toes and may kill me. He knew that his body needed what verse 9 says, the cloak 
that he left at Troas with Carpus. Can you bring that cloak that I sewed that's at Carpus's house so that I don't die from the cold of winter? But his soul, his body needed physical warmth, but his soul needed spiritual warmth. And he needed Timothy. Don't delay. Make every effort. But there's a second reason, not just the cold of winter and the difficulty of travel. Paul knew that the church in Ephesus needed a pastor. If Timothy leaves Ephesus to go visit Paul and it takes a few months to get there, a little bit of time to stay and a few months to get back, then that church is without a pastor for like half a year. They had other elders. They would have been fine. Paul knew that. Why would you, what if I just said, oh guys, I forgot to announce to you, Tracy and I are leaving. We'll be back in July. Why did he need him to come soon? Yes, it was going to be cold. And if he waited too long, Paul was going to be dead, not from the cold. Martyrdom. He knew there was already an edict, a bounty on his head. He knew they were going to kill him soon. He wanted to see Timothy one more time. Verse 21 introduces us to four people and then a bunch of nameless people. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, that's three men and one woman. The men are first, Eubulus, Pudens, and Linus. The sister is fourth, Claudia. Verse 21 says, Eubulus greets you. Also, also, Pudens. Oh, yeah, 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 Linus. Oh, I, I almost forgot, Claudia. You know who these four people are? I know your answer to that question. No. <laughs> They're just like you and me. Just faithful members of the church at Rome. These four people are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Their Latin names indicate that they were Gentile believers who were members of the church at Rome. And we can deduce from, hey, this guy said hello, also him, him, and her. Timothy knew them. He had almost assuredly benefited from their love and service to Christ and to him. This verse shows us that God's will for most of his kids is that they stay put as a faithful member of a gospel-preaching church. That's what they did. And they just loved other people who loved Jesus. But verse 21 adds a catch-all category. That's the rest of the church, all the brethren. I imagine when Timothy heard, I mean, when Paul heard from the Roman church when he was in his dungeon cell that he just kept hearing, man, if you ever write Timothy in that little header, be sure and let him know that we love him and we're praying for him. Verse 21 and all the brethren. What all the brethren? They greet you, Timothy. Now, young people, listen to me very carefully. You may cringe at the way we talk to each other because you think it's just spiritual nonsense. I used to think that too because the churches I grew up in, every dude was brother. Brother Steve, Brother Billy, Brother Ron. That's the pastors. But there was Brother Mike and Brother Eddie, Joel's dad, who had a heart attack this week. God help him. 
everybody's brother. And I just thought it was kind of bogus church talk until I started seeing verses like this. All the brethren. Brothers is not a generic greeting. Sister is not a generic greeting. So kids, when you hear any of the adult men here say to another adult man or believer here, brother or sister, in the New Testament, go check my homework on this. I'm pretty sure, based on my reading of all the examples I could find this week, the word brother is used by Christians exclusively to indicate when speaking to someone who, along with you, is part of the family of Christ through faith in Christ. When you say brother, you're saying, I believe your whole life is all about Christ. And Christ's whole life is in you, which is the reason your life is all about Christ. Such an impregnated, precious word. Use it carefully. Don't call lost people brother. Don't call lost people sister. God is your father. God is their father. Speak to them like you're God's kids. They knew Timothy from the time Timothy was in Rome with Paul. When was Timothy in Rome? How did the church at Rome know Timothy? Because if you go read Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, you'll find out that Paul wrote them from Rome and Timothy was with him. This church knew this young man. Well, that is the love and lifestyle of Christians. And our second point I told you is just verse 22. You can see it's short, so I don't have too much to say. But it's the most important point. The blessings upon blessings upon blessings that are ours in Christ. Lost people are doubly dead. They have no blessings. They may have a lot of stuff. They may have a lot of people. They may have a relatively smooth sailing home. It may look like there's a lot of love in their home. Lost people have a grand total of zero blessings. Verse 22, I'm calling it blessings upon blessings upon blessings in Christ, manifold, washing over you like the waves crashing on the sea. I know a lot of your situations because I have the privilege of being one of your pastors and some of you open your hearts to me and the other brothers and that's a gift. I know that some of the people in this small gathering are right now walking through some very hard stuff. I know that. And I'm also telling you, all of you, you are absurdly blessed. There's two things I want to draw out from verse 22. It's the two parts. The Lord be with your spirit and grace to you. The first is singular. The second is plural. The Lord be with your singular spirit. That's Paul to Timothy. Grace to you. That's plural. That's the whole church. First, the Lord be with your spirit. This is part of the blessings upon blessings in Christ. Lots of people have been named in the previous verses, people that we forgot even existed, but God didn't. Claudia and Eubulus and Linens and Trophimus and these other people that we forget about, God doesn't forget about. Lots of people have been named. Now the most significant person is named. 
In verse 22, Paul says, the Lord be with your spirit. If you just skimmed verse 8, 14, 17, and 18, you would find out very quickly that the Lord is not a generic name for God. It's Jesus. Go look at verse 8, 14, 17, 18. The Lord is Jesus. Jesus be with your spirit. Paul's wanting Timothy to know that the same Jesus who has been with Paul is with Timothy. And when Paul gets his head cut off for loving and serving Jesus, Jesus will take Paul to glory and Jesus will be with Timothy in Ephesus. The Lord be with your spirit. Is stated in the form of a blessing. May he be with you. May his nearness be your dominating self-conscious reality. May he be your life. May you practice the presence of Jesus always with you all the time. Just like Paul confidently said in verse 17, the Lord stood with me. Paul was wanting Timothy to know the Lord's going to stand with you too. The same Jesus is going to be with you in your ministry and your service to him and to his people. That's why I said, is your life all about Christ and all about loving and serving the people of Christ? That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Jesus be with you. Jesus be your life. Jesus dominate you, saturate you, marinate you. Jesus intoxicate you. Jesus just absolutely permeate everything about you. That's Christianity. There's not like two kinds of Christianity. There's not seven kinds of Christianity. Same thing's true for all who faithfully follow Jesus. The Lord Jesus be with your spirit. In the Great Commission, when Jesus got up from the dead, he said some really important things like, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He did not, I say it with emphasis, not because I'm trying to sound more preachy, but because I don't think we hear it because it's too familiar. He did not say that sentence indiscriminately to all humans. He said that to his obedient subjects. Go make disciples, baptize, teach everything I ever commanded you. I'll be with you always. To people whose life is dominated by Jesus, Jesus promises to be with them forever. The Lord be with your spirit. Paul wants Timothy to know. I don't care how many more, I, I do care, but in the sense of it affecting what God's doing, I don't care how many more false teachers come to Ephesus. That's been dominating this book. I don't care how many more people like Alexander the coppersmith do me harm. I don't care how many more people like Demas love the world and leave. I'm telling you, come hell or high water, Jesus is with you. And then finally, plural, not singular, plural, grace to you. That's plural. That's not just Timothy. It is the Lord be with you, Timothy. Grace to y'all. God's speaking through Paul, through Timothy, to the whole church at Ephesus. Don't breeze past those three little infinitely gigantic words, grace with you. 
It's a blessing, as I said, not only to Timothy, but also through Timothy to the entire congregation. That the grace of Jesus be with you all. You know, grace is not, as I say a lot, Lord help me to say it, better and different, more biblical, please. I'm stuck in this rut. I don't know how to say it better. This is the best I got. Grace is not an ooze that God pours on you through some divine container. It's not a potion. It's not an it. It's a he. It's a who. The word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace. You want grace? Bury your soul by faith in Jesus. When the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, did God pour out a potion to bring salvation? No, he sent his son to save our wretched souls. And God calls that grace. Grace be with you. A Jesus-dominated life. Now imagine this. For the whole church, what if you could be 100% confident that my whole life was all about Jesus and loving and serving the people of Jesus? And what if I could be equally as confident that every single one of you, whether you're four years old, 74 years old, your whole life was all about Jesus and loving and serving the people of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying at the end. That kind of grace, fully saturated in Jesus, dominating the whole church. Oh, do that among us, Lord. Paul wants God's goodness to be tasted by the people even in their pain. We know, as I said earlier, there's slaves and masters, widows and widowers. There's people struggling in their faith and false doctrines trying to infiltrate the church. There's a lot of challenges in Ephesus. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a big temple to a pagan god, was in the middle of the city. There were prostitutes walking the streets as people were on their way to church trying to solicit them. This was a very hard place to love and serve Jesus. And Paul ends the last thing he ever wrote before he got his head cut off for loving Jesus. Oh, that the grace of Jesus would just flood that little church, dominate that little church. Well, I'll close this way. Leaning into a good friend of yesteryear, Matthew Henry, thinking about grace be with you. I love this phrase. We need no more to make us happy than to have the Lord Jesus Christ with our spirit. For in him, all spiritual blessings are bound up. The best prayer we can ever offer for our friends is that the Lord Jesus Christ may be with their spirit to sanctify them and save them and at last to receive them to himself. Many who believed as Paul are already, even now, before the throne of grace with Jesus, giving glory to their Lord. May we, right now, taste the same grace of the same Jesus and be followers of him ourselves. Our application is two questions. What is your life devoted to? Remember I began by saying we're going to be remembered for something. Claudia was remembered as a Jesus lover. 
Puritans and Eubulus, Jesus lovers? What's your life devoted to? You want the truly blessed life? Whether you get to be the clerk in Corinth and make 10 times more money than all the rest of the church combined, or whether you're dirt poor, and I'll say it with respect because she can't rebuke me now, she's happy in heaven, doesn't care what I'm saying, like Irma Bobo, who can't find two pennies to rub together in her pocket. You want the really blessed life? Do you want what we've called this sermon series? Do you want to be faithful to the gospel? Only those who are recipients of the gospel can be faithful to the gospel. What's your life devoted to? That's question application number one. For your own good, for time and for eternity, my plea is that you, like Claudia and Eubulus and all the brethren and millions of other anonymous Christians that are not named in the Bible but are now happy in heaven, would you embrace right now the risen Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And better than that, though that's amazing, the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, including eternal life. What is your life devoted to? Paul's life was devoted to the gospel, to the church, and the people who were serving Jesus. And then finally, what are you going to be remembered for? I gave you the list of names that you probably gave negative remembrance. Pharaoh, Hitler, Pontius Pilate, positive recollection, Carol Couples and Augustine and so many others. What are you going to be remembered for? One commentary said Paul's Christian life began being dominated by Jesus in the blaze of God's grace on the road to Damascus. And his life ended trying to give that same grace in Jesus to all God's people. Every person either contrib contributes, every person either contributes to the strengthening or the weakening of the spread of the gospel. God has given you a ministry in his wonderful world. Maybe like Paul, your assignment is to travel to different places in some kind of recognizable station in the kingdom. Or maybe he's called you to be like all the brethren. We don't even know their names. Who are faithful members of one local church in Rome or in Ephesus. May we be dominated by Jesus and devoted to serving the people of Jesus. That's what 2 Timothy 4, 19 to 22 is all about. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would cause us to be dominated by the real Jesus and devoted to the cause of the real Jesus. For Christ's sake, would you open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus and the grace of the gospel? And would you open our eyes to see the people around us who've never tasted and use us, God, to get the gospel to more people and to help others grow in him.
We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.